Well, each uh, week we have uh, what we call a not ashamed video, and it's just kind of where we grab somebody in our church family and kind of capture a little vignette of their life. And so check out this week's. In 2008, I walked away from the Lord, not knowing what that decision would cost me. Every step I took, partying, drinking uh, alcohol, smoking cigarettes, smoking weed, cocaine, and crystal meth. I, I didn't care. Uh, I told my family that this is my life. I, I want to live it whichever way I choose to. So when my parents finally had enough, they kicked me out. The same day I get pulled over and I had drugs on me. Before I ever went to jail, I thought I was a pretty tough guy and uh, not scared of anything. But really inside, going to jail, I was so scared and so afraid, didn't know what to expect. The worst thing was when I was doing so much drugs, my mind was so gone that I was hearing voices in my head that I couldn't control. Knowing that there was no way out, I just cried out to God, said, I need help. And I remember crying for days and, and just praying and asking God, can you help me? Please forgive me. And I felt like God said to me, Atil, go find a Bible. I came out and this one guy approached me, wanted to talk to me during the break. I told him, hey, leave me alone. I don't want to be bothered, kind of being a tough guy. And, and then when he left, God reminded me, remember the Bible? And before the break was over, I go to the same guy who was the only guy talked to me during that time. And I told him, hey, uh, is there any way that uh, can you help me find a Bible? Funny thing, he was a Christian. And he said, I have a Bible that you can borrow. The more I read, the less the voices got in my head. I remember breaking down before God and telling him that I was not worthy of him loving me back. And how could he ever use a person like me? Through his word, he reminded me, Atil, I love you and I have forgiven you. He told me, Atil, I will restore your life back if you commit yourself to me all the way, all your being. And I said, God, whatever that you ask of me, I will do for the rest of my life. I made a commitment to him there. I said, God, you say go right, I'm going to go right. So he told me that I need to take the first deal the judge is going to give me. I said, okay, God, I will do it. And the judge gave me six months. And those were some, some hard times for me. I still had to do the time. And then I said, God, I have tasted the bad, but I really want to taste the good. I was not ashamed to share Christ. Yes, there was people making fun of me. God was somehow, some way getting his message across. He gave me opportunities to, to talk to other inmates about Jesus. And through that process, um, I got to witness to my mom. And when I came out of jail, both my mom and dad both became Christians. God was in jail. I know that. I seen his hand working. Before I came out of jail, I was praying and asking God, can you take me to church that will have a recovery program that I need for my addiction? Something that will help me in my walk. I came to Big Valley then. It was a good fit because he had celebrate recovery for me. Pastor Allen asked me if I wanted to come to the SHAPE class. I served in the parking lot team for two years. And in that process, I was asking God if he had anything else that he wanted me to do. Pastor Allen asked me if I wanted to come uh, join the, his team and serve in all weekend services. And I said, yes, I would, I would love to. 
And I know God is not done with me yet. He just keeps asking me to be obedient to him. And I know the promise I made with him, wherever he leads me, I will follow him for the rest of my life. And I know that I have been forgiven. As God's word says, as, as far as east is from the west, he has forgiven me. And I know he has forgiven me. So that's why I am not ashamed to share the gospel. No matter what you have done in life, if you surrender your life to God and commit yourself to him, he can use you and he can turn your life around and restore you uh, just like he's restoring my life. My name is Atil Singh and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, all of us have been blessed by him, and um, most of you don't even realize it. You know, we, we come in here, and, we, and this includes me. You know, when I get here on the weekend, whether it's Saturday or Sunday, the, the, there's already hundreds of people here long before I get here, people who love the Lord. Their sins have been forgiven. God is transforming their life, and they love the Lord so much they get here to serve and they make sure all the chairs are set up right and cards are in there. And, and uh, Theo is one of these guys that gets everything all set up so that we can all come and just enjoy each other, the fellowship of believers. Enjoy singing and worshiping the Lord and giving and all the things that we do. And there's an army of guys like uh, Theo, and I'm just grateful for how the Lord is working in his life. Well, here's, here's what I want to do. I want you to imagine something, okay? I want you to imagine that you're a, a Jewish person, okay? You're a Jew. And basically, your whole entire life, you've been taught by your parents. You've been taught by your uh, teachers, the, the rabbis, that the keeping of the law is what saves you. That if you simply work hard enough and you keep the Ten Commandments, that God will really be pleased with you. That if you work really hard and do everything that God says you're supposed to do, then everything will be okay between you and God. God will see you as a righteous person. You've been taught your whole life by your parents, by the rabbis, that if you just keep the Ten Commandments, that God will forgive you of your sin. That has been hammered into your life over and over and over and over again since, you know, you, your earliest memories. In other words, to the Jew, the, the keeping of the law was their ticket to heaven. That's what you've been taught. Your mom and dad taught you that. When you went to the synagogue, that's what the rabbis would have, would have taught you. And then one day, you know, uh, you're sitting in church. And the preacher steps up and says, hey, I received a letter from Paul this past week. And you're living in Rome. And so I think I'm going to read the letter to us all today. I think this will be really great. We'll hear what the great apostle has to say. And so maybe you're a brand new believer. Um, 
Maybe you're a Jew and you've heard about this Christian thing and so you're in the church that day and all of a sudden you hear these words. Paul says, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, in God's sight, by observing the law. What? That would have been a kidney punch to a Jewish person. That would have been somewhat blasphemous. Whoa, what did he say? That, that, that keeping the Ten Commandments isn't going to save me? Knowing and trying hard to live by, you know, the, the, these rules and, and regulations isn't what's going to get me into heaven? This went against everything a Jewish person would have been taught. Paul goes on to say, for we maintain that a man or a woman is justified by faith apart from observing the law. In other words, the law has nothing to do with your justification. God will see you just as if you'd never sinned simply by your faith. Once again, this would have been a crazy thought. I mean, in these two verses, Paul basically dismantles everything a good Jewish boy or girl would have ever been taught. He's saying that nobody's going to be in heaven because they kept a bunch of rules and regulations. No one's going to be in heaven because they knew the law, memorized the law, and kept the law. This would have been a really difficult thing for a Jewish person to grasp. So Paul in chapter 4 gives them an illustration of this truth that I'm sure that they probably never thought of. Romans chapter 4 says this. Paul says, what does the scriptures say? Now remember, there was no New Testament when Paul wrote this letter to the, the, our, the, our brothers in Rome, our sisters in Rome. So when he says, what does the scripture say? He wants the person in his audience to think back to the Old Testament. Those 39 books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all the way through Malachi. What do the scriptures say? The Jewish person sitting in the audience that day, they knew what the scripture said. And he's telling them, I want you to think about your Bible. He's asking the Jewish person sitting in church that day to do a Bible study. He's asking them, what does your Bible say? And now he quotes Genesis chapter 15. Abraham, and Abraham would have been the Abraham Lincoln to, uh, to the Jews. I mean, he was a big shot. He just invoked one of the great heroes of, of the Jewish faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wage, wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, in other words, he doesn't work really hard to keep the Ten Commandments or whatever, but he simply trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. What made everything right between God and Abraham was the fact that Abraham simply believed. In other words, he, he wasn't made right with God because he worked hard at keeping the law. He was made right simply by his faith. He's making 
the Jewish person sitting in church that day think? He's taking them back to the scriptures. He doesn't care how that Jewish person would feel. He wants them to engage their brain. And he takes them back to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, the Bible says, was justified simply by his faith. That's what made him right. James basically says the same thing about Abraham. Our brother James wrote, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. It was his faith in God, his trust in God. In fact, James goes on to say he was even called a friend of God. Why? Because he knew the Ten Commandments? No. Because he kept the Ten Commandments? No. He was a friend to God. Everything was made right between him and God because he believed. He put his trust in God. If God told him to do something, he was willing to do it. And the story of Isaac proves it. God said, I'm going to send you a Messiah. And Abraham believed. Here's the deal. Paul was simply using the life of Abraham to prove his point or to make his point that the law, as magnificent as it is, those 10 um, commandments, those 10 holy and righteous commandments are unbelievably uh, majestic. In fact, let me say this to you. If you know Christ as your Savior and you don't know the Ten Commandments, shame on you. I think it's a, a, an indictment on the American church that those that claim to know Christ could not rattle off the Ten Commandments. Not because they save you, But from Exodus chapter 20 on, you cannot miss the the importance of the law in the life of God's people. We're now a few thousand years later, Paul's writing to the Roman church and he's talking about them. For a believer in Jesus Christ not to know the Ten Commandments is shameful. You should know them. And with the power of the Holy Spirit within you, live them out. And I think it's tragic that, well, most parents know number five, right? Honor me! We yell that at our kids, right? We we may not know it's number five, but we know it's in one of them. And uh, murder's one of them somewhere in there, murder. In fact, if you don't obey me, I am gonna murder you. Somehow those two... (laughs) go together so let me challenge I challenged everybody on Saturday night I challenged everybody in the last hour in fact last night in our prayer time our prayer gathering and this morning I challenged everybody that was there why don't you memorize the Ten Commandments try to know them those are majestic words majestic and every believer ought to know them they've been a part they're a part of your your Bible You'll find them almost everywhere in some 
form or fashion, some context. Here's the deal. God didn't look down from heaven and see Abraham keeping the law and say, wow, because you're, you know the law and you memorize the law and you're working hard to keep the law, you know, I'm going to make you a righteous person. That's not how it works. God looked down from heaven and saw a man that believed in him. God saw a man that had faith in him. God saw a man that had put his trust in him, and this is what mattered to God. It was Abraham's faith that made him righteous, and the same thing is true for us today. It's our faith that makes us, makes us uh, right before God. Your righteousness has nothing to do with the law. It has nothing to do with you keeping the Ten Commandments. Your righteousness is solely based on your faith in God, your belief in God, just like Abraham. So with these and other uh, comments made by Paul, the natural question would be, Paul, if what you're saying is true, that the law doesn't save us, then what's the value or what's the, the purpose of the law? If what you're saying is true, how do the Ten Commandments figure into our lives today? What's, what's the role of the Old Testament, basically, in our lives today, if what you're saying is, is true? And beloved, these are great questions. So when you get to Romans chapter 7, Paul begins to unpack the answer. <laughs> he begins to uh, unpack what the role is of the law in our lives today. And in its context, Romans was written 2,000 years ago to believers in Rome, but it, it, it impacts our lives today, here, all these years later in Modesto, California. What is the role of the Ten Commandments, the law, in our lives today as followers of Jesus Christ? And so, last week I gave you number one, and I think it's the most important one which is why I'm going to talk a little bit about it right now again, and that is this, the law defines sin for us. That's the purpose of it. It defines sin for us. Look at verse 7 of Romans chapter 7. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? I mean, I mean, if it doesn't do anything, if it has no value in our lives, then what's the point of it? What's the point of the law? Well, of course it's not sinful. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. It defines sin for me. I would not have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. In other words, when Paul looked at the Ten Commandments, he got to number 10, and it said, don't covet. And he went, uh-oh, I've disobeyed God. Those ten commandments define sin for us. They are ten absolutes. There's no wiggle room with God. Here are ten laws. Don't break them because if you do, it's sin. Beloved, right out of the gate, Paul wants you to know that the law isn't sinful or evil or, or wicked or anything like that, but that it was given to you that you might recognize the fact that you've disobeyed God, that you've done things that God has said are wrong, and that makes you a sinner, which means there's a problem between you and God. Your sin brought with it a consequence. Separation from God. Listen, yes, 
God is a God of love. I love to talk about God because he's a God of love. But the reality is, is this, is your sin brought with it a, a consequence. He loves you, no doubt about it. But he is holy. And we're sinners, and it's like oil and vinegar. They, they, don't, they don't match. Listen to what the great prophet Isaiah said. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. In other words, sin has an impact on us and God. Yes, God is a God of love. There's no doubt about it. But also, sin has had an impact on your life. Everything is not okay between you and God if you don't know him. Now, the world's out there screaming at you that, oh, everything's fine, everything's wonderful, and it's not. And God gave the Ten Commandments that we would see that everything's not okay, that you have disobeyed me, that you've dishonored me. And here the great prophet says, your sin actually separated you from me. And as I said, the Ten Commandments are the tool that showed us this truth, the truth that we've all sinned. Galatians chapter 3, we looked at it last week, says, before this faith came, we were held prisoner by the law. We were locked up until, you know, this faith in, in the Savior should be revealed. So the law, the Ten Commandments, was put in charge to do what? To lead us to Christ, to lead us to the Savior, the law wasn't given that it would save you. The law was given that you'd go, oh man, I'm messed up. Yeah, you are. How do I fix the problem? The Savior, the Messiah. Now that faith has come, Paul says, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. That doesn't mean we shouldn't obey it. That doesn't mean that the law is not significant in the life of a believer. Because it is. It's just that it has nothing to do with, you know, somehow redeeming us in, in the sense that we're, we're now forgiven because we know it or we try to obey it. God gave us the law that we recognize our sinfulness and that recognition would lead us to Christ, our Savior. And as I said last week, it was going to take something far more powerful than a few holy words written on some stone tablets to transform our sinful hearts, <laughs> way more than just some holy words on a stone tablet. Here's the deal. If you don't understand the fact that you've sinned against God, how could you possibly know that there's tension between you and God? You can't. And so you showed up at a church today that wants to do its best because we love you deeply. We want you to know that there's a 
chance that maybe everything's not okay with you and God. You may think everything's okay with God, but the issue is, does he think everything's okay? And that's a different question, isn't it? See, we can think, oh, everything's fine. I'm golden with God. Oh, really? Does he think that? How would you know? Here's how you know. Here's how we'll know. God in his great love for you made sure you'd have a way of knowing that things weren't okay between you and him. And that is he brought the law to you. And by the way, this is exactly what happened to Paul. Paul's going about his life. He was one of these religious guys that knew the Ten Commandments, had them all memorized. And one day, I don't know, he was doing a Bible study and he He's looking at the Ten Commandments. Maybe he got to Exodus chapter 20, and he begins to read them, number one, two, and he got to number 10, don't covet. And boom, something happened. As he's doing a Bible study, as he's reading the Word of God, just like a theal, the conviction of the Holy Spirit happens in his life, and he begins to go, wait a minute, hold on here. I've disobeyed God. I've coveted, and I believe that God begins to do a work in his life, and so when Paul got on that horse and he makes his way to uh, Damascus, we read about his conversion in the book of Acts, and Jesus shows up, knocks him off the horse, and says, hey, Paul, what are you doing, man? Why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting me? The Holy Spirit had already been beginning, had already done a work in his life. Because he even tells us here in verse 7, it was the reading of the word of God that brought conviction into my life. I saw number 10, and I went, hey, I got a problem. There's a story in the Bible of a young man that was really wealthy, and he wanted to know how he could make sure he, he went to heaven. And so he comes to Jesus, and he asks a really great question. He says, Jesus, what what do I have to do to get into heaven? What do I have to do to get into your kingdom? And Jesus uses the law to answer his question. Specifically, Jesus uses the commandment, do not covet, number 10, to reveal his sin. Matthew chapter 19 captures the moment. It says this in verse 16. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. See what Jesus is doing? He's taking this boy to a Bible study. He's taking him to Exodus chapter 20. He's saying, what does the law say, young man? What does the Bible say, young man? Well, which ones? I mean, there's 10 of them, really. Jesus, which one? And Jesus replied, well, you must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and your mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commands, the young man replied. What else must I do? And this is a beautiful story because Jesus is just reeling this guy in. It's like, I haven't murdered anybody. Yeah, I already know that. I've not committed adultery. Yeah, I already know that too. But he knew exactly what his problem was, and it was number 10, just like Paul. He wanted stuff. He wanted stuff. That's what 
being, having a problem with covenants and says, I'm not content with what I have. I want more. And to get more, I need money. Because I want more stuff. I want bigger houses. I want more cars. I want cool things. And so Jesus is reeling them in. I've obeyed all these commands, a young man replied. What else must I do? I do. And Jesus told him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had lots of stuff. You see, Paul was confronted with number 10, don't covet. This young man was confronted with number 10, and they both had different reactions, didn't they? One saw his sinfulness and repented and became the great apostle Paul. One, at least at this moment, as it was recorded in scripture, said, you know what? I like stuff too much. I'm not content with what I got. I want more. So, you know what? I guess it ain't all that important. Warren Worsby, just a great preacher, said this, quote, Jesus did not tell him, this young guy, about the law because the law would save him. He told him about the law because the young man didn't realize his own sinfulness. True, he had never committed adultery, robbed anyone, given false witness, or dishonored his parents. But what about covetousness? When Jesus told him to sell his goods and give to the poor, the man went away in great sorrow. The commandment, thou shall not covet, had revealed to him what a sinner he really was. Yet instead of admitting his sin, he rejected Christ and went away unconverted. I got my hands on some x-rays this past week. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about an x-ray, and thank the Lord I'm not a doctor because I don't even know what I'm looking at here. (laughs) But this guy's goofed up, I can tell you that. He's got all kinds of pins and stuff in his leg. Yikes. Uh, this This guy's knee... Oh man, he's got he's got major problems, and this guy, and this guy, I think this guy's got a tumor. I think, isn't that what you don't want your doctor to say that? Hey, I think he got a tumor. I think, but I, I'm looking at this guy's stomach. Eee, there's some big thing there. Here's the thing about these X-rays. These things fix anybody? They just tell you you got a problem. That's what these do. They simply show you something on the inside that says you got a problem. Then it's up to you to go find the orthopedic guy or the oncologist or whoever it is who then can fix the problem. But all these do is tell you you got a problem. And that basically is what the Ten Commandments were. They were an x-ray of your soul. They just told you something about you. You're sinful. Now you can make the decision that, you know what? I don't want any help. I don't believe that lump in there really is cancer. I don't believe that. I'm not getting any help. You can do that, and a lot of people do. Or you can go, wow, I got a problem, don't I? Yeah, yeah, you do. What do I have to do to fix the problem? Well, you got to go see this guy. 
What do I got to do to fix the problem of sin? There's a guy you got to see. His name is Jesus. That's the guy you got to see. He's the only one that's going to fix the problem. You can look at the x-rays all day long. You can look at the Ten Commandments all day long. You can memorize all ten of them, know them backwards. And not, a, not any of that will change the problem in your heart. Just to let you know you, you have a, a problem. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a, a parable about two men. Both of these guys were... Uh, you know, good Jewish boys, which means they both knew the law, and I'm sure they both had it memorized, but their response to the law was like night and day, okay? Listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18. He said, to some who were confident of their own righteousness. They were confident because they, they thought because they knew the law and had memorized the law and were trying to obey the law that everything was okay between them and God. To those who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Here we go. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One of them was a Pharisee. This is the group that were confident that everything was okay between them and God. They believed that, oh man, God looked down from heaven and thought the world of them because not only did they have the Ten Commandments, they knew the Ten Commandments, they had memorized the Ten Commandments, and they did their best to keep the Ten Commandments. And so obviously, he's got to love me. I have got to be a first-round draft pick in God's kingdom. But there was another guy, a tax collector, and to understand this, the tax collectors were, were pawn scum in that time. They were thugs. They were basically like the mafia was, you know, in Italy. Whenever you read about tax collectors in the, in the Bible, they were, they were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. And the Roman government said to the Jewish tax collectors, you go to your Jewish brothers and sisters and you collect taxes from them and then you give that money to us and we'll continue to suppress the Jewish people. Oh, the Jews hated tax collectors, hated them. Because then not only did they collect the proper amount of taxes, but then they'd also throw on a few shekels and they'd pocket it on for, for themselves. The tax collectors were just, just the crummiest evil thugs of the, 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 the Bible. And Jesus picked one of those guys, Matthew, to be on his team. Ought to give you some hope. <laughs> so you got these two guys that come into the church. One's this guy, I know the Ten Commandments, I know the law, man, I know, I got to memorize, I got my, you know, I got it. Another guy, the tax collector, he, he knew the law. He knew. And they both come into church that day. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like that loser, the tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. All those are outward things. But the tax collector stood at a distance he wouldn't even look up into heaven, but he beat his breast. God, have mercy on me. See, he, he looked at the law. And went, oh, oh, man. I fumbled this thing. He saw the x-ray of his soul. 
I can't even look at you. You're so holy and you're so righteous. I, I don't even look at you. We have mercy on me. You see, the, the law served its purpose in the tax collector's life. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other guy, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Two guys, they both had the law, and one guy strutted around because he knew the law. Everything's okay between God and I. And another guy knew the law and just recognized how goofed up he was. And so he humbly comes before God. He's broken before God. And God says, that's the guy right there. He gets it. He understands his need. For, for the Savior. So the first thing that Paul says is that the law just simply defines sin for us, right? Now these others I'm just going to rush through. They're all already in your notes. But number two, the law energizes the, the sin within us. This one's really interesting, and it's so true. Look, look, look at verse 8. But sin used this command, okay, the command of do not covet, Okay? But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covenant desires within me. If there were no law, then sin would not have that power. At one time I lived out, I lived without understanding the law, but when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life and I died. And beloved, there, there's something within the human heart that just wants to rebel whenever it's told it can't do something. Can I get an amen? I mean, isn't that weird? I remember having this long layover years ago at the Atlanta airport. So I'm sitting there and I watch these guys who are painting this pillar and they got done and, and uh, they put up these signs on all four corners of it that said, do not touch. Okay, I'm not kidding. And I, I wasn't thinking anything about it, you know, on a, a plane, people get off, they deplaned and all these guys are walking by and... And I thought, that's weird. It says don't touch. And, and sure enough, another guy's walking down, you know, he's got his coffee. And I started counting them. How many people are actually going to touch the thing that says do not touch? And I lost track. Because everybody was walking by, do not touch. And there was something within their souls, their flesh. Don't touch. Don't touch. I must touch. I must touch. I must, I must do it. Isn't it weird, mom and dad? Your kids are out playing in the front yard and, hey, Jimmy, don't go in the street. And as soon as you say it, you go, oh, crud. Because the first thing they do is they're heading for the street. <laughs> My mother says, don't go in the street. I must go. I must go into the street and disobey. Listen, listen to me. Why is that? Why is it that people have such a hard time obeying the rules? Well, Romans chapter 8 gives us a, 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 some great data. He says, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. In other words, what Paul's saying is, is that your flesh 
which is, Paul says, no good dwells in it. This is the headquarters of sin, the Adamic nature. It, it never, you don't redeem this. You can memorize all the books of the Bible. You can come to church every day if you want. This will never be redeemed. It's gonna, it's gonna die and end up in a pine box. It's just the headquarters of sin. It connects you to the physical. No good dwells in our flesh. And our flesh, our Adamic nature would be another word for it, is absolutely diametrically opposed to anything that God has to say. Your flesh doesn't like the fact that you're here today. Your flesh doesn't like the fact that you were singing songs of Jesus a little bit ago. Your flesh doesn't like it when it gives an offering. Your flesh doesn't wanna do anything that the Bible says you ought to do, nothing. And so a little child who hears their parents say, don't go in the street. Number five, honor your parents. They don't even know what's happening. They don't know. And so you as a parent always have to teach your children to obey. You must obey. In fact, you'll spank them or do whatever you have to do to get them to obey because naturally they disobey. And that's just simply because of the flesh. It's just contrary to the things of God. And so once God said, do not covet, oh really? Watch this. <laughs> See, that's how it works, that's what Paul's saying. All the law did was just stir up the flesh within you. Now, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You have a greater power source within you than your flesh. But make no mistake about it, next week, Lord willing, we're gonna see how even the great apostle Paul, the flesh got the better of him at times. Even Paul. You show me a, a follower of Christ that tries to live by a set of rules and regulations and I'll show you a person that's simply arousing more sin in their life. Because the bottom line is, is, as soon as somebody says, don't do something, you want to do it. Dr. MacArthur said this. He said, quote, when a person is confronted by God's law, the forbidden thing becomes all the more attractive, not so much for its own sake as for its furnishing a channel for the assertion of self-will. You see, your flesh loves itself. only cares about itself. That's all it cares about, it loves itself. And in our culture today, I mean, we've, we, we've taken that whole thing to a whole nother level. I want you to imagine, I want you to think about this. If you saw a buddy, I don't know, you're playing golf with him or you saw him at the gym or you saw him here at church and they came up to you and said, hey, good to see you, and they whipped out their wallet. They said, hey, I wanna show you some pictures and they whipped out 10 pictures of themselves. <laughs> and it was just, it's just, it was just 10 pictures of themselves. Wouldn't that be freaky? And yet it happens all the time on Facebook, doesn't it? I get it. 
You go to a movie with your wife or your family, take a picture, write the thing, write the Gallo Center. Hey, we're at Disneyland. I get that. I want to see your family photos. I enjoy that. Hey, you know, I just bought myself a new car, and there you guys all are. Hey, hey, look, Jim got a new car. I think that's cool. But what's weird is you take a picture of you, just you. It's just you. You're, you're so special that all your Facebook friends just want to see a picture of you. Isn't that just bizarre? And that wasn't good enough, and I coined the narcissistic stick, selfie stick. We needed a stick where we can get better angles of ourselves. Because this wasn't good enough. I'll tell, you, I'll tell you right now, and I know there's a younger generation listening to me, and you go, you're, you're, you're a loser. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Maybe I am, but you need to listen to me, young person, or in some of you old person. That's just freaky weird. <laughs> I, so I'm telling you, just a picture of you. I mean, I mean, like I said, it would be weird if somebody came up and said, hey, I'm gonna, I got something I want to show you, and they showed you a picture of just them. I don't know what you do with that. That's just you. Yeah, I know. Well, you're just standing by a tree. I mean, what, what, I know. I, and by the way, here's another picture of just me. And here's another one. Here's one of my abs. Ooh, really? I don't, I don't want to see your abs. I don't care. I, 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 it's just the most bizarre thing. But because of modern technology, we, we can take the whole selfie thing to a whole other level. Because your flesh likes itself. Think about it. When you get in a group photo and someone takes the picture, the first thing you care about when you look at it on the camera is, do I look good? <laughs> and if you look good, yeah, post it. You know, your friend could have pizza hanging out of his mouth. Who cares? I didn't even notice that. All you cared about was you. It's unbelievable. You just walk through the mall, and if there's a, like a mirror there and you see yourself, it's like, Looking pretty good. Our, our flesh is goofed up, man. And, and that tells you why it doesn't get to go to heaven. Just one little example of why this doesn't go. Christian, when you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, you're going to be with the Lord. But this ain't going. Dead. Now, you'll get a new one that hasn't been infected with sin. You'll get a new body. The Bible promises that. But this isn't the one you're going to get. This one's just, just so, so goofed up. Someone once said, ever since Adam ate the forbidden fruit, we've all been fond of forbidden paths. Boy, that's true. Number three, uh, the law condemns and brings death to us. Number four, the law shows the, the character of God to us. And number five, the law shows how bad sin really is to us. And you can do a little Bible study on your own uh, later. And as I wrap this up, let me just say it one last time, okay? The whole purpose of the law is to help you recognize that you, you can't make it into heaven on your own. You can't be good enough to get into heaven on your own because sin is just a bad thing. It was so bad it ruined your relationship with God. It brought death to the human race. It was so bad it condemned mankind to, to hell. Sin is a, a bad thing, and there's only one remedy. 
And that is a relationship with God's holy and righteous son. That's how you deal with the problem of sin. And for some of you, I, I believe that the Lord has opened your eyes to that truth today. He may have done it earlier during a song. Maybe he did it even when you were driving here. God in his great love for you began to open your eyes to the truth of sin and its impact in your life. And you recognize his great love for you. He loved you so much he sent his son Jesus Christ to come. <laughs> That's how much he loved you. That Jesus in your life would blot out sin. That, that's, a, that's a love gift. That, that's, that's a God who loves us. And maybe for some of you, when we're done, you could go into the altar and the thing's been packed all weekend. You, you could go into the altar over in the venue and say, hey, I need Christ. I need Jesus Christ in my life. You see, the Holy Spirit's doing the same work in your life right now. I believe this, that it was doing in Paul's life. As you were confronted with the scriptures, the Holy Spirit took that and has now revealed to you the problem you got, and that's sin. And you need the Savior. So go in. Our pastors and elders, spiritual leaders are in there. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to show you how you can walk out of here a, a, a different person. But it could be you're here and your marriage is all goofed up. And you're going to walk out of here looking really good, you know, and get in the car and go home. And the next thing I'll hear is, I don't know, maybe one of you filed for divorce. And you never, you never said to your spiritual leaders, hey, would you pray for me? Would you pray for my spouse and I? See, your flesh is getting the better of you and your marriage is goofed up. Don't leave here. Go in there and say, would someone pray for us? You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that the, the prayers of a righteous man, a righteous person, accomplish much. They're powerful. I believe that. Go in. Maybe you're here and, I don't know, you're a, you're a teenager and you've seen your, your parents. They're goofed up. They've tried to hide it from you, but you're smart enough. You can just sense the tension in your home. Why don't you go in there? Let us, let us bear the burden with you or a piece of the burden with you. Go in and say, hey, look, my mom and dad are not doing well. And let us pray for you. Don't keep it a secret, young person. Don't do that. Maybe you're here and your son's gone sideways. Just go in, let us pray with you. Maybe you're here and you're a businessman and you know the economy's picking up, right? But it hasn't picked up in your business and you're wondering if you can make payroll this week. You're thinking, man, if I don't close this deal, I don't know how I'm going to, you know, pay the bills. And you could leave here and bear that all on your own, or you could come in there and say, hey, would you pray that I close this deal this week? And let us, let us bear a piece of it with you. Maybe you got a pink slip this week, and you don't know what you're going to do. You're, you're looking for a job. Would you let us pray with you? You may have to wait in the line out there, but so what? Let us pray. Maybe, maybe you got an x-ray. And the thing about how it works nowadays is you go down and the guy takes the x-ray and he knows. He knows exactly what the problem is, but he can't tell you, can he? What he does is he says, come back, you know, go make an appointment. You got to sit around for a week till you find out from your doctor what, what that thing is. And you're scared. And you're nervous. You don't know what Tuesday's doctor appointment's gonna be about. Would you let us pray for you? 
Let us care. It's what churches are for. It's what the fellowship of believers is about. Maybe you already found out it's cancer and you're scared and you're nervous about the chemo and all the stuff. Come in there and say, hey, I'm just really nervous. Would you pray for me? That's what that room is for. God wants you to come and sing and do all the stuff and, you know, the preaching's done, okay? The singing's done, the giving's done, but God ain't done. And so take advantage of this space that we've created here at Big Valley Grace where you can talk to somebody and we'll listen and then pray. We'll pray for you give you some counsel, give you some thoughts, maybe what you ought to do. Everybody in the venue stand, everybody in here stand. Lord, uh, wow, what a, what a fantastic weekend we've had. Last night was just so crazy cool. Last hour, wow. Loved hearing Annie Quinones sing. That was just a beautiful song. Grateful for the holy music we sang this morning. Music that gets our eyes on a different place, just sacred. It's fun, cool, and just so exhilarating and encouraging to see all of these people last night, today, last hour being baptized, Lord. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for your word. We saw today the power of it in, in a Theo's life. We saw the power of it in Paul's life. We saw Jesus taking people to the word of God and these stories. And may we be a church that just loves the word to the degree that we actually read it, memorize it, meditate on it, live it out in our lives. Give us a great afternoon, and I pray these things in your name, Jesus. And all of God's people said... Amen. Hey, live for Christ, okay?